The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Open your scripture. Go with me to Philippians 2. We're going to spend the majority of our day there. Uh, what I'd like to do is, uh, if you get to Philippians 2, we'll be starting in verse number 5. But I'd like to clarify that, you know, yesterday I did meet with the council, and they didn't ask me anything about oysters. And I love oysters, you know. It's my favorite food you don't have to chew. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> do I have to stop now? Okay, I'll stop. Um, In all seriousness, uh, good to be back, Uh, thankful for this church. Um, I don't know, I think some of you know this, I know know some of you know this, Uh, some of you perhaps don't know this about your church, but uh, this is an excellent church, and that's only flattery if I say that while I'm here and nowhere else, but I say that in other places, that God's really doing the work here, and you have faithful elders and faithful pastors, and so... When they offer ordination or the opportunity to preach, anytime I get to be in this pulpit, I consider that an honor because of the standard of your church as being so high. So thank you again for allowing me to be back with you. Uh, Today we're going to spend our time in Philippians 2, working through really a post-Christmas passage. Uh, What I mean by that is this passage has primarily to do with the incarnation of Christ and some of the results that that has for us. And and really coming out of the Christmas season, I'm always reminded of the new year and the great opportunities to reflect on goals, priorities, new beginnings, aspirations. But, But really personally, when I come out of the Christmas season, I'm always reminded of the elusiveness of contentment. The joy that's promised through the Christmas vacation or the toy for the kid or the family dinner, and it it never really delivered. Today, the title of the sermon is Contentment Through Obedience, because I I think that's what we're going to see Paul teach us through these next few verses. And my aim is to help get us all settled into 2017 among all of the uncertainties, among a new presidential election, among a new government that's taking place and even personally i know that 2017 holds a lot of excitement for you individually potentially job changes babies coming kids graduating various changes that are taking place around us i i hope that this message will just help settle us a bit i know that contentment is a very slippery idea what i mean by that is that Sometimes it feels like when you, when you have it, when you finally got it, that it just it slips away just as soon as you found it. The holiday's promise didn't seem to come through. The new year promises new opportunities, and then sometimes at the end of the year, you wonder, okay, it, it doesn't feel like anything really changed over the past year. There's always that next corner. And yet that next corner doesn't seem to come. It just stays right beyond our reach. Retirement comes, and I'm not content there. Graduation comes, I'm not content there. Baby arrives, I'm not content there. Baby graduates, I'm not content there. You know, it always seems like it's that next corner that contentment will finally arrive. You know, I'd love to take the time and say that this was a 2017 American phenomenon, but really this isn't anything new. 
This isn't just something that modern Americans struggle with. We could look back to the children of Israel in the wilderness, couldn't we? And see discontentment. They weren't happy with the food they had been given. Even though being delivered from slavery, they still weren't pleased. We'd rather go back to slavery. We had food there. You can think of the cry of Rebecca for children in Genesis 30. Give me children or I'll die. Feeling the weight of that? We could fast forward to the New Testament and think of the different scenarios where Paul warns of false prophets who are using the gospel for means of gain. And he says, be content with the things you have. We could look at Judas and see how he was willing to sell out the Messiah for just silver. Or Ananias and Sapphira's greed and how that greed ultimately led to their demise. This isn't a a modern 2017 issue. This is a humanity issue. Issue. This is an experience that we all face. In the 1600s, probably one of the best works on contentment was written by a gentleman by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. You know, what's funny is he wrote this before the Internet. Right, you couldn't. Amazon didn't suggest items for me when he wrote this. And here's, here's what he had to say about it. He said that Christian contentment is a rare jewel. Think of that. This is 1640s-ish. Christian Christian contentment is a rare jewel. And if it was rare in the 1600s, I think we could say it's, it's at least rare now, perhaps rarer as we continue in society. So the question has to be, what is contentment? What do we mean when we refer to contentment? The idea of contentment, if we were to continue to chase what Burroughs was saying, as he said, it was this. And I think this is probably one of the best definitions you could come up with. He said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. A disposal to be happy about God's will In every condition, every circumstance, I'm pleased with God's will for me. The best way I can summarize that is by saying contentment is wanting what God wants. I want God's will in my life. I want it now. If it means that, if it means I don't get that, I want His will. Make sure you grab the last part of this. He says, freely submits to and delights in. God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. If you're taking notes today, I hope that you catch this. Contentment is wanting what God wants for you. Make sure you grab that. This is where we're going to spend most of our time, and this is where I think Paul goes here in Philippians 2. So what he's doing is he's really building a case. He starts the the passage here in chapter 2, and he's making a call for unity. I want you guys to be unified according to verse number two, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. And then he makes a call towards humility. So look with me now. Let's read verse five, and we're going to read down to verse number 13 here. This is now the reason for those things. Verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death. So verse 8 is going to be really important for our time together today, but let's keep reading. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now verse 12, this is one of the outworkings. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, so what, what Paul is doing is he's making this transition from why do you need to be unified, verse number 2, why should you put others' interests above your own, verses 3 to 5? And he uses verse number 5 as that, really that dot that he's connecting. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Literally, it's think like Christ. One commentator says the best way to translate this is let the same kind of thinking dominate you as dominated Christ Jesus. That's the essence of the passage. That's how he's building his case here for unity, for humility. And what's interesting is he uses this idea of mind in verse 2, be of the same mind. Verse 5, have the mind of Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, he gives the opposite. He gives the warning of those who don't know God and says that their minds are on earthly things. Paul's call for unity and his selfless humility is based off of the call to think like Jesus thought. And he explains the way that Jesus thought. Jesus, according to verse number 6, he didn't cling to his position as God. Verse 7, he emptied himself by becoming man. Verse 8, he was humbly obedient to the point of death. This is the, the Christmas story in a nutshell. Jesus came to earth, took on flesh, lived a humbly obedient life to the Father to the point of death. What's interesting is that Christ's humility, the humility that he's calling the Philippians to, is manifested in his obedience. Verse 8. He was humble to the point of obedience, and that obedience led him to death. Hebrews 5.8 says something similar. It says, although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Christ's obedience was an overflow of his humility, the same humility that he was calling the Philippians to. Therefore, in verse number 9, we begin to see what was the result of Christ's humility, his willingness to be obedient to the point of death. We see that he's exalted. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What's interesting is that in Christ's exaltation of the Father, it led to the Father's exaltation of Christ. Christ didn't assert himself. Christ didn't promote himself. In his humble obedience to what God had for him, in praying, not my will, but yours be done, we see that the Father, in fact, exalted Christ. So look at the flow now of the, of the passage. We see that Paul starts by saying, be unified, 
have the same mind. Put others before yourself. Look at what Christ did. Look at the ways that he thought. And then that leads us to verse number 12. So the stage is is really set for verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In light of what Christ has done, Paul calls the Philippians to obedience. Isn't that interesting? This is the third thing that he's encouraging him to. Verse 8, he says that Christ was obedient to the point of death. And now here in verse number 12, we see that he's saying again, Okay, Philippians, as you've always obeyed, so now continue to obey and work out your own salvation. Really, he's putting this call forward in two ways. As you've always obeyed, Now work out your salvation. So embedded in this first comment is the fact that they have obeyed. They have been faithful to him. If you're familiar with the Philippians, he's already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 5, that, hey, you guys were partners with me. You are partners with me in this gospel ministry. He finishes in chapter 4, verse 15, and he says the same thing. He says, nobody partnered with me. Nobody helped me. Nobody met my needs. But you, you did that. Thank you. So as you've always obeyed, Paul's connecting the dot back to they have been faithful to him. They have been obedient to him. And now he gives this. Work out your own salvation. You know, this phrase is perhaps a bit difficult for some of us good reformed theologians. When we hear work out your salvation, like we get a bit twitchy. You know, we what does that mean? We feel the disparity between grace and justification by faith alone and between work. So when we hear this phrase, sometimes it may seem like Paul is urging the Philippians to work for their salvation. However, that's not what he's doing. Really, obedience is being used synonymously here with what he previously said. So as you've always obeyed, so now continue to do that by working out your salvation. The idea is that your salvation already exists. You are saved. It's existent within you. And now from that existent salvation, you must work. Work it out. This is a common thing. This isn't just Paul saying it in this isolated instance. He says it in Titus 2, verse 14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawful. From all lawlessness, excuse me, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is the last part. Who are zealous for good works. Ephesians 2.10. Where is workmanship? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This isn't an isolated instance. The call to live a righteous life. If you were to go to different places, you could see putting on the new man. You could see righteous living. You could say good works. But all of these are expressing the same thing, that these good works are an overflow of your salvation. We're to be zealous for doing what's good because we're a believer. Not to become a believer. I want to please God, not become pleasing to Him, to be accepted by Him. Bad theology says that I work so I can be saved. And good theology says I work because I am saved. This is of profound importance. This is what 
Paul's getting at here. Work out that which is already in existence among you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to somehow do your best and then you'll be accepted. It's there. Now work hard. He uses this idea of fear and trembling. This was a hard one to discern and, and study. What, what is he getting at? Fear like, like... When I think of fear and trembling, I think of afraid. I think of cowering. Is that what he's communicating here in this passage? And, and as you continue to study, you find that what Paul's getting at is that this is a reference to the seriousness of working out their salvation before God. The seriousness and reverence that is due to him in our good works. We're not to be afraid. We're not to cower. But we are to take with great seriousness and express great reverence to our God as we work out our salvation. That's what he's getting at here. Work out your salvation soberly, seriously. Work it out with great respect unto God. Verse 12 is getting at be obedient to God like Christ was obedient to God to the point of death. Why? That's verse 13. I love that Scripture gives us wise. Why work out your salvation in such a why? Why do that? What's the point? Look at verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Verse 13 says that God works in us to desire to be obedient And as you walk by the Spirit in obedience, He gives you the ability to obey. I I know that must have been a run-on sentence, so we're going to clarify it. I love the play on words that He has here. Did you see it? Work out. Work out your salvation. God works in. Here's what that working in you looks like. As believers work out their salvation seriously, diligently, soberly, they're doing it because God's at work in them. Isn't that beautiful? Work out. Work hard. Press on. Be zealous for good works. Titus 2. Why? Because God's at work in you. He energizes you for this work. He gives you the ability to work out your salvation. That's the idea of this passage. Doesn't that sound a lot like John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. He gives us the energy and the ability to work out our salvation. So really, what room is there for boasting? I mean, there's, there's no room. What room is there for self-exaltation? We did it. We just muscled our way through that. We just kind of grinned and, and made our way. It was difficult. There is none. As you and I are obedient to God, God gives us the ability to be obedient to Him. That's what verse 13 is getting at. Perhaps this is a bit difficult as well. I recognize that that may not be common knowledge. or Maybe this is the first time that you've heard that. As you're obedient, God gives you the grace, the power, the resources to be obedient. But know that it's said other ways in Scripture. Paul says it in another place. And when I read this other place, I'm always thinking, man, Paul, that seems so braggadocious. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. It's like, hey, man, like how can you say that? That seems prideful. 
Even him, you know? How can you say that, Paul? And then look how he follows this up. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I worked hard for good works. Maybe some of you feel that way. Good works are hard. They're difficult. And as we do the hard work of good works, we know that God is at work in us to give us the ability to obey. God gives us the grace to do what's right. The first aspect, according to this passage of God's work in our obedience, is that He gives us the ability to obey. You have to catch that. He energizes us for the work so that we, like Paul, we can say, I worked hard, but it wasn't me. It was God's grace working in me to His glory. Yet there's one more aspect that you have to see here. This one is a bit more nuanced. God gives us the grace to work for His good pleasure, but verse 13 also says that God works so that we want His good pleasure. Did you catch that? As you and I are obedient with God's help, God changes our wants so that they match His wants. As you and I work out our salvation that is enabled by God, God does something in our lives. He changes what we want. Literally, through humble obedience, God starts this reformation process of desires within us so that we begin to desire the things that He desires. Burroughs said it like this. He said, You should labor to bring your heart to quiet and contentment by setting your soul in the work of your present condition. Listen to how he finishes this. The truth is, I know nothing more effective for quieting a Christian's soul and getting contentment than this. Setting your heart to work in the duties of the immediate circumstances. What a profound thing he's getting at. He's echoing exactly what Paul's saying here in verse 13. Contentment comes... Not when we turn that next corner and we arrived at that job or that graduation, that retirement. It doesn't come then. Contentment comes as we are in the business of doing our spiritual duties in our immediate circumstances. We could substitute in being obedient, work out our salvation. And as you are obedient, God works in you to give you the ability to obey and to want to obey. Ever thought about that? God works in you so that you do it. And then God works in you so that you want to do it. So let me share with you one of my greatest. It could be the greatest. I don't know if it is the greatest. So I have many automobile uh, regrets, automotive regrets, both purchasing and selling. Um, One of my greatest regrets is at one point I owned a 1973 VW Westphalia. It's like a VW camper. And I bought it for $1,000. I had high ambitions for this car. I still see them on the road, and I I tell my wife, like, oh, oh, that could be us. Like, we we could be doing that. She always says no. So I bought this car, um, paid $1,000 for it with the ambition of getting it running and it, it being your daily driver. 
And as is true with any older vehicle, I started to tinker with it, had no idea about cars, uh, had no idea how to do engine work. And so it eventually sat and sat and continued to sit. And after many months, my father was wise enough to talk me into selling it and say, hey, Greg, why don't you sell it, use that money to put it towards a car that would actually be useful to you. So I blame him for making me sell it. No, that's not this. So essentially what we did is we wanted to take it to his shop in order to sell it because it would be um, obviously in a place that would be visible. And in order to get it there, we had to tow it. Okay, so don't bash on my dream vehicle here. So it, it, it was a beauty. In the towing process, I had never really done that before. And what takes place, uh, you, you can't just wrap a chain around one car and wrap it around the other car and just go. There's, it's a bit more complicated than that, and I, I quickly learned that. Really, as you're towing a car, what has to take place is really you're following the person in front of you. You're making sure that you're keeping your distance. You're doing your best to keep that chain or that rope taut so that you're not jerked every time that they go and you stop and whatever that looks like. So there's really this, this nuance to it. You know, I wish I had learned that uh, really well, but it was probably, I think it was the last turn, uh, to be honest. It was the last left turn, and something happened. I wasn't paying attention, and I rear-ended uh, my father, who was in the truck, and damaged the most beautiful vehicle that's ever lived, you know. So what, what I found out, though, as we were towing this car is that in order for me to follow the truck, the truck had to keep moving. Well, that seems maybe kind of simple, but... The truck had to keep turning. In order for the, the bus to align with the truck, what had to take place is that bus had to keep following and the truck had to keep moving. If he stalled, I stalled. So as he would take a corner, I would eventually steer my way around the corner as he would continue to pull forward, keeping the bus aligned directly with the truck. So there is much sadness for me still in losing the VW bus, but what stands out to me is that in order for us to stay aligned with each other, he had to keep moving forward. There was no, like, backing up, rearranging, getting stalled. You've got to keep moving forward, and then I will get pulled back in alignment with you. That's very similar to the way that God works in our lives in regards to contentment and his will. So I'd like you to bring up the slide. So what takes place is that uh, initially our will doesn't match God's. And there's a rest in peace picture down in the bottom corner. Our will isn't aligned to God's. We don't want what he wants, just to say it very candidly. This is discontentment at its finest. I, I don't want what God's, God wants. I want to graduate now. I want the baby to come now. I want retirement now. I want the job change now. I don't want what he wants. And so the question then is, how, do, how does our will and God's will melt together? And that comes through continuing in God-enabled obedience. So show the next slide. As you are continually pulled forward and walking by faith, not by sight, by God-enabled obedience, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God does something in you. He aligns your will to His will. The Puritan said that your will would be melted together so that they're now the same will. Isn't that fascinating? 
as you work out your salvation, think of the truck pulling the VW bus. As you work out your salvation, what takes place is you continue to be obedient, continue to do what God's calling you to do. There's a point where you want it. You want God's will. You're desirous of God's will. Let me see if I can just give you a small example of this. Pastor Greg and Pastor Frank are not allowed to turn around as I ask this question, okay? Have you ever woke up on a Sunday morning and not wanted to go? Like, I mean, you don't, we're not going to do an altar call right now for you. But have, you, have you ever felt that way? Maybe that was this morning. Like, when we got up, it was pouring outside and we're thinking, oh, great. You didn't want to go. You're tired. Uh, you're busy. Uh, there's maybe a sore throat coming in. You're not sure. Like, you just don't really feel like being there that morning. And you think to yourself, you know what? I need to go. I know that God wants me to be in church. I know that corporate worship is part of His will for my life. I don't really want to go, to be candid with you. I don't want to wrestle the kids, or I don't want to drag myself out of the bed. But I'm going to go. So you go. You muster up the strength. You get mildly presentable, and you make your way to church. And what happens as you're there is... You're so thankful that you came. You're so encouraged. It was rainy. You were tired. You didn't want to get out. But the sermon was helpful. The fellowship was sweet. The worship through song was encouraging and edifying. And at the end of the service, you know what happened? Is you really want to be there. So it started that morning by saying, "Ah, I don't want to do this again. We'll stream it. And then you go, and you love it, and you leave church saying, I am so glad that we went today. You ever felt that way? You ever done that? Is that just me? That's a vignette of what this verse is like in your life. I'm working out my salvation, and as I'm obedient with God's help in my life, He does something. He changes my wants. I want what He wants. I want to be at church, and this morning I didn't want to come. It's just a a small example of what God does. You come to want God's will by God-enabled obedience to His will. This has many implications for contentment, but I want to Just point out, how do you get settled in God's will for you? Maybe you go back to the Sunday morning dilemma. What do I do? We recognize that in my submitting, in my obedience, that ultimately the submission turns to delight. I don't want it now. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you're in a difficult relationship. Maybe you're in a job that's difficult. I don't want to be faithful now. You have to recognize that through your faithfulness now, God brings about that alignment of your will to His will so that you want what He wants in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10 gives a really interesting thought. So this is the passage where Paul's commending them for their generosity. It's notable that they were giving so generously. But what's really interesting about Paul's commendation to them is not just that they gave, even though they were generous in their giving. 
He says, I'm thankful that not only did you give, but that you wanted to give. Isn't that interesting? I'm thankful that not only you... Have you ever told this to your kid? That not only you did the right thing, but you wanted to do it. I'm thankful that not only were you obedient, but that you wanted to be obedient. That's the commendation that it gives them. The way to Christian contentment comes through God-enabled, humble obedience to the Father. Your circumstances, if I'm... Reading this right, your circumstances cannot make you content. Cannot. Not are unlikely to. Your relationships cannot make you content. Your possessions cannot make you content. Your president, someone's a bit close to home maybe, cannot make you content. Biblically speaking, contentment comes as we are wanting God's will and being obedient to God's will. As you and I are humbly obedient like Christ was, we want what God wants. And we want it because he's at work in our life, according to verse number 13. It's through no credit of our own. He gives us the ability. He gives us the desires to do it. It's not by saving, spending, dating, retiring, marrying. It's it's not by any of that. The way of contentment comes through being faithful in our immediate context. Being obedient now. Being faithful now in, in this job now or this relationship now or this environment now. The way to contentment is through humble, God-enabled obedience. And that's what Paul is telling the Philippians here. Work out your salvation. God's at work in you as you do that. And as God works in you, He not only gives you the ability for it, but the desire for it. I'm convinced that many of you, especially if you were saved as an adult, you can look back to where you desired some pretty nasty things. Your pre-Christ desires were very different from what you have now. And now, you don't, you don't even want to do it. You're not tempted by it. It's not a temptation to go back to some of those things because you don't want to. Why? Because God's work has continued to take place in your life. As you are obedient through His help, The power of the Spirit in your life, something takes place to where now I want to be obedient more and more to Him, to be pleasing to Him. As we work out our salvation, He works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So let's make this practical, if we can, or maybe even more practical if if we feel like we've already gone there. This year, the beginning of every year, has this somewhat unsettling potentiality. Uncertainties, job changes. Some of you will retire this year. Some of you will graduate this year. Some of you, military, will move this year. Whatever that looks like, this year is chock full of potential contentment robbers. I want you to see that that contentment never comes about through your circumstances. It's your faithfulness in those circumstances. 
if our new president has encouraged you towards greater contentment, then you have to see that's not a biblical contentment because of Philippians. I want, you, I want to encourage you, perhaps, maybe there are some here who have a tension between what you want and what God wants. You know His will. It's very clear to you. There's no question of that. It's just, I don't want it. I struggle to want what God wants for my life. I struggle to be obedient to what God's called me to do. I, w- I want to encourage you that, hey, that's good. It's good that you know God's will and you're struggling for it. But I also want to encourage you that there's no formula, there's no pill, there's no lightning bolt that's going to zap you, and now you want what God wants for your life. That contentment comes as you continue to be obedient and faithful to what God's called you to do now in these circumstances, as undesirable as they may be to you. So much so that 1 John 5, 3 says that, as, as we, as children of God, have His laws, His commands are not burdensome to us. It gets to that point to where a command that once seemed so difficult is now a joy. It's not burdensome. I want to do what pleases God because God's working in me as I'm obedient to Him. This one's a, a, a bit further of a step in the opposite direction. One of the ways, you know, for those of you who know me know that I uh, am a biblical counselor and oftentimes get to meet with those who do not know God. One of the ways that I help encourage people to discern their relationship with God is, do you want to do what God wants? seems like a very straightforward question. Do you want it? To one side of this, we're saying there's a tension between I know I want it, sometimes I don't want it, other times. But then on the other side is just this, I don't want it, period. There's no battle here. There's no tension. I just don't want it. I don't want God's will for that or this. You know, what's interesting about that is if you don't want what God wants, that means you're probably not his kid. I don't mean you're perfect at it. I don't mean that you've arrived or that you're doing it well. I mean that if there's not an inkling of desire for what pleases God in your life, you know what that usually indicates is that you're not his kid. You're not a believer. The condemnation that Jesus gave to the Pharisees in John 8:44, he said this, Your will is to do your father's will, the devil. What a scary thought. If I have no inclination to do what's pleasing to God, then that means that I probably have no spiritual pulse. I'm probably not his kid. Let it be a warning. Let it be an encouragement. To not have a battle with God's will is an indicator that I'm probably not his kid. So when I said be encouraged, at least there's a tension, at least there's a battle between knowing God's will, wanting to do it. If you have no tension at all, be afraid. Be concerned. Recognize that that's a very scary place to be. So what I've said so far is that there are those who have this tension. Do you feel that way? There are those who have no battle. And then there are those who consistently see contentment as being around that next corner. Like just fill in the blank. Whenever that happens, graduation birth, retirement. When that happens, then I will finally be content with what God has for me. 
Jeremiah Burroughs described it like this. It's like standing on one hill, looking to the other hill and saying, when I get on that hill, I'll be able to touch the clouds. So you, you hike, you march, you make your way over to that hill, and you get on that hill, and you realize you're no closer to the clouds than when you started. Contentment is never around the next corner. Your circumstances won't bring you to contentment because it's your response in those circumstances that brings you to contentment. Humble, God-enabled obedience brings about God's will as He works that will in my life. My circumstances can't do that. My relationships can't do that. My money can't do that. Only through faithfulness to God with His help and the power of His Spirit can this take place in my life. One of the favorite questions that I've ever been asked, it was by counselee. He asked me this. He said, Greg, what do you do when your want to is broken? (laughs) Ever felt that way? That's a good question. What do you do when your want to is broken? I don't want to. I know. I see. What do you do when your want to is broken? What do you do if I don't want to do what God wants me to do? What do you do? Is it rote? Is it meaningless to just do it and be faithful? How do I respond in those times where I don't feel like, I don't want to, I don't desire to do what pleases God. I think that is the essence of faith. Is it not? We walk by faith, not by sight. In the difficult times where I don't want to do what God wants me to do, will I by faith do it anyways? With His help and His grace. I don't want to repay good for evil. Romans 12. But by faith... God will give me grace to do it. So I'm going to repay that evil deed with good and kindness. If we get bogged down waiting for that perfect moment when we want to do what God wants us to do, it may never happen. Because you're never doing it. You're not exhibiting the faith that He's called you to. You're not exhibiting the obedience that He's called you to. What do you do when your want to is broken? I'm not saying soldier on. I'm not saying muscle up. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying by the power of God's work in our lives, do we continue forward in doing what we know He wants us to do? And I I know all of us have been in that scenario where we don't want what He wants. But by faith, we know that we must lean forward and walking by our faith and not by our sight. So finally, I want you to go to Psalm 37 with me. This is one of the most liberating passages that I read as I discern God's will for myself and for others. Psalm 37.4 is a passage that's written in the context of someone who delights in the Lord. So up to this point, I've said, be thankful. We can rejoice to some degree that we have an inner tension between our will and God's will in our life. But we must recognize that our circumstances, the outside things around us, relationships, so forth, that's never going to make us content. I've offered just a warning, perhaps the ability to take your own spiritual pulse. Do you want what God wants for you? 
If not, then you're probably not his child. I've said that what if I don't want to? What's my response then? By faith, with his help, I continue to lean in towards obedience. And the final thought that I want to leave with you is that of Psalm 37.4. Let's start in verse 3 and then read down to verse 4. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. We all get Ferraris. You see that? Greg promised it. Someone is saying, when we're delighting in the Lord, when we're doing good, when we're trusting in Him, something takes place in our life. We want what He wants. It means that literally God is implanting desires in you so that your desires are now melted into His. They now match each other. One of the most liberating things I was told in my own ministry is, Greg, do you, do you want to go to ministry? And I said, yes, I, I don't know if God's calling me. Is there like clouds involved or pigeons? You know, like how does this normally happen? And, and my youth pastor walked me through and he said, um, are you doing these things? You know, are you walking in the spirit? Are you doing your best to live a sanctified life? Uh, yes, yes, I, I think so. You know, I'm not perfect. And then he said, do whatever you want. Because what you want is what God wants for you. Now, that's not license to do whatever you want. You're not hearing. That's the result is that God changes your desires so that they match his desires. So now I can say, I want to go to the mission field. Or I don't want to go to the mission field. And that's God's will for me. And there's liberty in that. Have you ever wrestled with knowing God's will and wanting God's will? And how do I discern it? Psalm 37 verse 4 is such a opportunity to feel the freedom that as we delight in God as we are obedient to use the terminology of Philippians 2 our wants begin to reflect his wants we want to love our spouse we want to be good parents we want to come to church who's forcing me to this I want to be here Our desires are matched to God's desires, and that comes about as you walk by faith, working out your salvation with the power and ability that he gives you to do so. So I want to close with this benediction. This is from Hebrews. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, uses something that's really similar. This is his wish. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. So now may God do verse 21 in you. Listen to the words of verse 21. May he equip you with every good, everything good, that you may do his will. That sounds a lot like Philippians, doesn't it? May God equip you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The way to contentment in 2017 is not that we got a new president. It's not that a job changes or a house changes or a relationship changes. The way to contentment is by being satisfied in the desires of God for us. 
And that satisfaction comes as we humbly, faithfully, patiently work out our salvation with fear and trembling. May God give us grace to be content in Him in 2017. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, You know my heart and You know that I am not speaking as one who has arrived. The words of Paul are true for me that I press on in this area too. Oh God, may you guard our hearts against false hopes this year. False hopes of jobs or money or moves or whatever that looks like. May we recognize that those things, you're never going to do it. It's always going to be around the next corner. May you give us grace to be faithful today in the circumstances that you've placed us in today. And through that, Lord, may you give us grace to be happy and to want what you want for our lives. Thus, we're content. May our contentment never lead us to laziness or idleness. May we never think that being content means that we don't do anything for you. I think your word tells us otherwise. But as we work for you, by the power of your spirit, through the energy that you give us, as we do that faithfully in 2017, oh God, would you give us grace to want the things that you want. And we ask for this, and we do it in your son's name. Amen.